We're going to be continuing our series this morning, Questions Worth Asking, and if you have your Bibles, we're going to be spending a lot of time in Ephesians chapter 1. It'll be on the screen as well. would encourage you to turn there as I get all this other stuff figured out. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse 3. We're going to read to verse 10. This is the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. These are God's word for his people this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. It's the word of the Lord for us today. There is a lot in that passage of scripture I just read, way more than we can really deal with today. But I read that because the topic that we're going after this morning in this question series is how do I know for sure that I'm going to heaven? And I was intrigued to hear this question. One, because it's kind of difficult to answer, and I got it. Um, but also because the question is not, how are you saved? Right? We're saved by believing that God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He was born as a human. He lived on this earth for God. He died on the cross to atone for our sin. He was resurrected from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he poured out his Holy Spirit. And if you believe that, and you want to live in the way of Jesus, that is how we're saved. But that's not the question. The question is, how do I know for sure that I'm going to go to heaven? That it's all going to kind of work out? I'm sure you've asked this question before. Maybe you've had conversations about it. Maybe it's a question that pops up in your head often. I would imagine if we are Christians, this is a, this is a thing that goes through your head every once in a while. I know I've wrestled with this. I remember specifically thinking about this question a lot when I was about 16. I'd grown up in the church, but I felt like God was wanting me to make a profession of faith, to make my faith my own. And I had this, this problem because I felt like I wasn't good enough, and I'm not. And I felt like I just kept messing up which I was and still do. And so then I would, 
I would do this thing where I'd like, anytime there was like, do you want Jesus? I'm like, yes, right? I'm like recommitting. Every time I mess up, I'm feeling like I have to say a prayer. I mean, you should pray, but like a prayer to like, like I got to redo this thing. And then I would feel not good enough, and then I would mess up, and then I'd be like, oh man, I got to do the prayer again. And it was this cycle that I could not get out of because I'm not good enough, and I keep screwing up. And the prayers I was praying just didn't quite seem to make me feel better. And then, and then, I came across this passage we just read. I read Ephesians chapter 1, and I didn't understand it at all, but I read it, and I heard words like chosen, and adoption, and love, and predestined, and I was like, that's what I've been looking for. These were really strong, secure, confident words that were rooted in something way deeper than my minuscule faith that I had, because they weren't about me at all. They were about God the Father, and something changed in my life. I felt confident, not in myself, still struggle with that, but I felt confident in God. See, when you read this passage and we think about this question, when you read it, what you start to realize is this whole passage is pointing to the Father. God started this thing, and it's through Christ and it's through the Spirit, but it's all pointing back to this really good Father that we have. And Paul knows what he's doing when he's writing this. And so I want to answer the question just before we even get started. How do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? The short answer is this, the Father. And I want to spend the next few minutes we have together unpacking why I think that's true. Well, I think that the scriptures are pointing at that. And I hope that when we leave this place today, that you know that you are loved that you know that you are securely held in the hands of the Father if you are in Christ. And I believe that that will change all of our lives. See, because God is the author of salvation. We've been singing about this. We talked about this at the baptism. God is the one who's starting this whole thing. And I think this passage is going to give us some insight and it's going to point us to God. And what we're going to find out, and this is what's tricky is that it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about me. But each and every day, we want to make it about us. Because I'm, at least from my perspective, I'm the center of my world. And from your perspective, you're the center of your world too. But God has something else to say. Because if we're in control of it all, oh man, we are so done. Right? I mean, anybody made a mistake in here? Anybody made a mistake today? right? A bad one. <laughs> we, we've already, we're just so behind. And so if you want it to be about you, good luck, but I sure don't want it to be about me. So I want to start in verse four. And, and like I said, I cannot handle all this passage. There's just too much there, but I encourage you this week, read this passage every single day and see what God starts to do in your heart. The first thing I want to say to you is that the father loves you. 
Amen. It's a big deal. Let me say it one more time. The Father really, 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 really loves you. And if I spoke Spanish, I'd say in Spanish. And if I could say it in Korean, I'd say it, you know, or whatever. But, and it would sound much cooler because foreign languages always sound so good, right? I don't know. He really loves you. Think about this. In fact, he loves you so much. Okay, here you go. That he thought about you and chose you in love before anything was ever created in the cosmos. Chew on that for a second. You can't even chew on it. We don't even know what to do with something like that. We call it love, but language breaks down. God, in love, moved and chose you. And here's the problem with that. Even when I say, even when I say the word love, in the New Testament, we, have you heard this word agape? People talk about agape love, because that's like the God, you know. And that was not like a Christian word. That's a Greek word, and they took it. And it's this idea of a fatherly kind of unconditional love. And it's awesome. The problem is like that still doesn't do it justice, because we cannot conceive of a love that is not conditional. It's almost impossible for us. Right? Because even everything we do has conditions. If you've been married, you, you took a contract out on that thing. Right? Because you know at some point you're going to struggle. And we want to love unconditionally, but the truth is we do have conditions for our love. I love you. I will love you forever. And then something happens, you're like, well, I don't know. I'm struggling with that, or something really hard happens. I don't know if we can stay. Even your kids be like, I love my kids unconditionally. I say that too, right? But I bet you, man, I don't know. Sometimes they do stuff, and I'm like, I guess I do have conditions, <laughs> right? I love my kids. But if there was no conditions in our love, and I'm being serious, then there would be no broken marriages. There would be no parent that is estranged from their kids. Those things wouldn't exist. Because we're human and we're broken. And so a, a love of God that is unconditional, it just doesn't even make sense. So that's why I'm saying the best thing I can tell you is he really, 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 really loves you. And hopefully we can unpack that a little bit. Now, if you were to look at, I'm going to talk about grammar for just a second. I know grammar is like whatever. Um, but it's important in this sense. When you look at this sentence, sentence, in love we were chosen and predestined. In love is an indirect object, which means it's answering the question, how were you predestined? It answers a question. Why does that matter, Danny? It matters in this. You were not chosen in truth. You were not chosen in justice. You were not chosen in, uh, what's a better word, um, fairness. You were chosen in love. You weren't chosen because you're good enough. You weren't chosen because you're good looking. You weren't chosen for, or you weren't even chosen because like you were the worst and God just felt pity. He was like, oh, I guess I should, you know. You were chosen in love. In love. In this really deeply rooted love. God did something. And love has to be displayed, right? So if I just say, I love you guys. 
and I don't do anything to show you my love, my love is kind of meaningless, right? It's just an empty word. It just doesn't matter. And so God shows us his love by choosing us, sending his son. But I want to show you another picture to show God's love, because I think pictures really help. If the Bible had pictures, that'd be awesome. And I guess there are Bibles with pictures, but anyways. All right. Have you heard of the prodigal son? That story, many of you know this. Some of you know this. So it's a story of of a father and two sons. And we're going to talk about the first son just for our purposes today. And essentially, this son decides, I want my inheritance now. It's like the Willy Wonka girl. I want it now, right? And she just, ugh, she just tries you crazy, right? Um, He wants it now. And the father gives him his inheritance. Remember, this is a parable, so it's not a story that actually happened. And however he gets the inheritance, he takes it. You wouldn't get it normally until your father passed. That's how inheritances work takes it, runs off to Vegas or whatever their Vegas was, loses it all, and has an epiphany. I've screwed up. <laughs> like, this is bad. And Luke 15, starting at verse 17, listen to what Jesus says. When he, speaking of this first son, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he goes to his father. He recognizes he's not even a son anymore. He's hoping he can be a servant. But while he was still a long way off, listen to this, this is powerful. His father saw him in the distance I added that. It doesn't say in the distance. He saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. It's such a powerful picture of the kind of love that our Father has for us. The son had given up his inheritance. He wasn't even worthy to be called the son. The father has no legal responsibility to this former son. He gave him what was his. Like, we're done. You're dead to me, so to speak. He had disgraced his family. Like, this is kind of as bad as it gets in their culture. And yet, when the father sees the son coming from far, he doesn't go, like, that's what I would do, right? Just stand there like cold dad status. He doesn't like, hold on, right? That's what the son, I think, is expecting, no, he runs. And like dads don't run a lot. I don't, my dad never ran. I mean, a bad knee, if he would have ran, like his knee would have fell off. And so I picture my dad like doing like a, you know, sorry if my dad's listening, I love him. He's had a knee replacement. He gets it. Um, but the father runs and embraces him. And the son is probably like, if you ever some, somebody like, you go to like give him like a handshake and they like hug you really tight and you're like, oh my gosh, like, I wasn't expecting, I just had, um, I just had a, a kid outside, somebody we know, run up and give me a hug this morning, and I was like, hey, and he grabbed onto my neck, like almost choked me, out of 
just showing me his love. It was really overwhelming. That's, the, that's what I picture happening here. The father embraces the son. He pours blessings on him. And the picture is this. God always comes down to you. God has ran after you. God has made a way through Jesus Christ to redeem you. He comes after you. He has compassion. And the father says, son. Can you imagine how that would have sounded? And, and God says to you and to me, son and daughter, no matter where you go, no matter where you've been, I got you. And what's really interesting is what the son doesn't know is that the son always belonged to his father, regardless of how far he went. And so too, we have always belonged to our father, whether we've even recognized it or not, whether or not we feel it, because there's seasons in your life when you feel so close to God, and there's seasons when you don't. And that's okay. The Father has you. I want to read a quote to you. There's a book by Henry Nowen, a great Christian writer. Uh, he has a book on this story called The Return of the Prodigal Son, and he talks about the father and the two sons, and he, he pairs it with a picture by Rembrandt. It's a really great book. This is what he says in response to this. I think it's on there. As I let all this sink in, I see how the story of the father and his lost sons powerfully affirms that it is not I who chose God, but God who first chose me. This is the great mystery of our faith. We do not choose God. God chooses us. From all eternity, we are hidden in the shadow of God's hand and engraved on his palm. Before any human being touches us, God forms us in secret and textures us in the depth of the earth. And before any human being decides about us, God knits us together in our mother's womb. God loves us before any human person can show us love. He loves us with a first love, an unlimited, unconditional love, wants us to be his beloved children, and tells us to become as loving as himself. I can't say it better than Henry Allen. God chose you in love. That should comfort your heart. How do you know that you're for sure going to heaven? You are in the hands of a loving father. God is infinitely more compassionate and loving than we can even understand. Okay, second thing. The father has adopted you. Right? In this verse, it talks about we were predestined for adoption to sonship. Paul speaks about this also in Galatians chapter 4. That's the passage. He uses the same phrase and he talks about us being enslaved to the law and all this stuff. And he says that because of our adoption, now we can cry out, Abba, Father, which means Daddy. We can go to Him. Our adoption gives us access to God. And I want to talk about adoption, and I've mentioned it a few times, but Roman adoption is fascinating. And what Paul's doing here in this text is, like, unreal. Paul, the biblical writers know what they're doing. I just want to say that. Like, anyways, they know what they're doing. It's way better than we even think. And so in adoption, you kind of have two different scenarios happening. You can have somebody who is an orphan, right? So you have no father and mother anymore. Maybe they passed away or they sold you off or whatever in the Roman world. So you have no family, you have no father, or in their world, you are transferred, like, it's like a, 
Sounds bad. It's like you sold the car to somebody. The ownership is transferred from one person to another. Right? So somebody could have been a slave and somebody could buy them right, and adopt them. And it happens in these different scenarios. For us, spiritually, it's both. Prior to Christ, we have no father. We're spiritual orphans. But we're also enslaved to sin, death, and evil. Right? And Christ frees us to all those things. But I want to talk a little about Roman adoption. In the Roman world, in the family, the father is like the kingpin. He's like it. Everything's about the father. This, if a father wants to put his son to death, he can. That's crazy. Like they can do anything they want. Everything goes through the father. And inheritance comes through the father. And I don't know if inheritance is as much of a deal for us. Inheritance was a massive deal uh, in their world, especially in the Roman Empire. If you don't have a son, you can't pass anything along. So if you don't have one, you, you need to adopt one so that they can take your name and they can take your stuff and you have legacy. So in the story of the prodigal son, we're talking about nurture, right? We're showing God's great love for us. When Paul starts talking about adoption, he's talking about love, but he's also really talking about inheritance. What are the benefits of becoming the son or daughter of God? And I think that's what he's getting at a little bit. And so they're adopting people that are not just like two or three years old. I can be adopted or someone in their 50s, right? Because you're talking about legacy. So listen to this. Here's some things that you received if you were newly, if you were adopted. First thing, you get a new family. Maybe you didn't even have one. So maybe you just get a family. So that's a huge upgrade. You get a new name. You take on the... the, the the family that adopts you, they rename you. Now, we were in Beautiful Gate a few weeks ago. Thank you so much for your prayers. Thank you so much for your support. We, we all went. We all made it back. So that was a win right there. And we got to witness and see some incredible things that we're going to share about here, hopefully soon in the future. But one of the things that we saw was we got to witness and be part of an actual adoption ceremony. It was powerful. And one of the things that happened amongst all the singing and Bible reading and love was that the new parents had already renamed their new son. He was coming in and they have the right to do that. They were giving him a new identity. And it really matters to the parents and it matters to the son. But also aside from that, you get an inheritance. You're going to receive whatever the father has. This is really good. All of your previous debts and responsibilities are eradicated. It's all gone. You get new responsibilities and expectations. And then you could never be disowned by the family that adopted you. Think about, okay, think about all of that in mind when Paul says you've been adopted now. Think about what that means. This is what it means. It means that you have a new family. You're part of the family of God. So not only is God our father, but we become a family together. You've been given a new name. You're now a son and daughter of the king. You get an inheritance. We get the spirit of God. We get eternal security, which is what we're talking about this morning. You get that. You have that. All of your previous debts are erased. Your sin has been paid for through the blood of Christ. And you get new responsibilities, which is to live in the way of Jesus and to be sanctified and to start living for him now. And you can never be disowned from our Father. You are 
secure. You're in his hands. This is fast. This should help us understand a little bit more of what Paul's doing. Now, one other thing I think Paul has in mind is this. There was a really famous Roman adoption that happened fairly recently. And Julius Caesar adopted his great-nephew Octavian. And I have a reason why I'm saying this. So upon Caesar's death, in his will, he adopts Octavian to be his son, to make him heir so that he can take his name, so that he can get all of his stuff, so that he has access to the throne. This is important because Julius Caesar is the last of the Roman Republic, right? We're ruled by multiple people. And Octavian becomes the very first Roman Empire. That's when the Roman Empire starts. And he gets a new name that you might know, which is Caesar Augustus. And he gets access and control of this whole empire. And he just happens to be, if the dates are right, he happens to be the empire when Jesus Christ is born on this earth. And I think Paul knows that, and here's why this is important. Paul's readers would know this, and he's saying, hey, that guy's inheritance was massive. Like, he got an empire, he got everything. And here's what Paul's saying, this is what I'd say to you. We have something better than that. Caesar Augustus' empire was going to go. When he died, it's gone. He can't take that with him. We have something that cannot perish. We have eternal security in God. We have the Holy Spirit. What we have is better than any king on this earth could ever have. And that's something to rejoice about. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. Right? Verse 3 in Ephesians that we just read. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ that's incredible. We can never be separated from Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. Our inheritance can never be taken away from us because it's not earth-bound. It is bound in who God is. You are an adopted son and daughter. So how do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Because you have a new family. You are adopted. Your inheritance is sure regardless of whether or not you're feeling that at this very moment. Third thing, and this is near the end of the passage, verses 8 and 9 say this. I can find it. Um, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, listen to this, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, this is a massive statement, but it's essentially saying something to this effect. God is doing something (laughs) cosmically to redeem his creation, and God is going to finish what he started. Now, I don't know how he's going to do it. I mean, he's doing it through Christ. I'm looking around the world thinking, all right, well, God's got this, but he's going to do that. And it works collectively, but also individually. What God started in you He will be faithful to complete. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. What God has started, he will finish. He will bring unity to all things. Now, this is where our Reformed understanding really helps us. Because we have doctrine that helps us understand this. There is a um, doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. I'm not sure how many people know what that is or whatever. 
But if you've heard of the acronym TULIP, it's the P. It's the one on the very end. Perseverance of the saints. And TULIP, we can talk another time, is an acronym for how, as Reformed people, we understand salvation. It really has to do with how we understand salvation. Now, this doctrine sets us apart because this makes us different than some other Protestant churches for this reason. We believe that once a person comes to Christ, they can never lose their salvation. You cannot. And we believe that chiefly because God is the author of salvation. It's not you. It's not me. It's God. God is in control of all things. Or put it another way, if God, uh, we're the object of salvation, God is the subject. He's the one doing the saving. The object is just can't really do anything. So it goes to sin, right? If we can't save ourselves, if we can't pull ourselves out of the muck and the mire, if we can't get to God, and God, you know, grabs us and pulls us up. Tim was sharing something earlier, like God as a father pulls you up out of the stuff. And then we, even the faith that we have where we respond to God is a gift from God. If none of that depends on me, then how could my salvation that needs to be sustained, how could that be in my control either? That wouldn't even make any sense. Louis Burkhoff, who is a Reformed theologian, says it like this. Maybe this will make more sense. Strictly speaking, it is not man but God that perseveres. Perseverance is that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. God is persevering on our behalf through Christ and through the work of the Spirit. We have no ability to save ourselves. Therefore, we have no ability to maintain our salvation. It is all God all the time. If you want to really know, want to know what reformed means, it is all God all the time. It's that simple and that complex at the same time. It's all about God. He is the one who's going to sustain us. Listen to these words that Jesus speaks in John chapter 10. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Think about that. Jesus grants eternal life to his followers. And he says, sometimes they perish. Wait, no. It says they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of his hand. And what's interesting, he's, he talks about the Father. And so Jesus has you. This is the picture. Jesus is like, I picked them. They're in my hand. No one can take them from my hand. And then Jesus starts talking about the Father. Well, my Father who's greater than me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So you got you're in Jesus' hand, and God's like, well, then the Father's hand's over you. It's like, and then the Holy Spirit's just like, I don't know, whatever he does, right? He's just swirling around, right? So you're like locked into this thing. That's pretty secure. Jesus is holding you. The Father's holding you. The Spirit is empowering us. I encourage you to believe Jesus' words to you today. 
really encourage. And if you're not sure still, I got two more bonus examples for you for staying so long. Okay? Got two more bonus examples. One of them is right here. It's the sacraments. It's this water. We talked about baptism. Right? It was poured over. The sacraments are a reminder that we are held in God's hands. These waters symbolize, they're meant to remind us that we died and were raised with Christ. That we're new creations. That though we all look the same, we are indeed different now. And we're called to remember our baptism because we are prone to forget, like I mentioned earlier. And then you have the table, which is not here, it's out there, but which reminds us that we are sustained and saved and nourished by Christ alone. It's his work. And this is why we, we come to the table monthly, why we remember our baptism, because these are to remind us that we are securely in the Father's hands. That we're saved both now and forevermore. And the question becomes, what could that mean for us today if we really lean into that? What if, you know, uh, Tim was sharing with us earlier, talking about baptism. And he was talking about how when we remember our baptism a lot, and I loved this, he said, you might remember it so much that when you're washing your hands before dinner, you might be reminded of your baptism because you're so used to seeing the water. You might go out to water your really dead grass right now in the middle of the summer and be reminded of the water and be reminded that God nourishes us. These, it's not just water. These things start to get inside of us and they do something. And they remind us that we don't hold our salvation. God does. And so how do you know, as I conclude, how do you know that for sure you're going to heaven? It's the Father. Through the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He holds you. And I hope this morning that you see just how much God loves you. And though we're encouraged to live in the way of Jesus and we, we start doing things and we, we want to become better people, right? I'm all about becoming better people. But those things in of themselves, they don't, they don't make us more worthy to God. They don't save us more. They help us live for Jesus. They help us love our neighbor on this earth and demonstrate God's love for other people. But those things, we can get so tripped up into thinking that Ten years ago, I gave my life to Jesus. And then God's like, all right, I did that part. Good luck. I mean, how many of us have felt like that a little bit? Like, he did that part, and then, okay, like, it's like this. If you have kids, I remember distinctly, Kaylin, I mean, I knew much. She had the baby, right? I just was, like, there, <laughs> cheering her along, like, you got this. Anyways, we're there, and then they'd say you can go home, and you're like, okay, like, do you want to check my driver's license or anything? Nothing. They're just like, cool, you're good. So I remember, like, getting the car, and I, Kaylin, put the baby in the car, Graham, and you're just driving home, like, are we on our own now? Like, they're just going to trust us with this baby? Right? And I'm like, I remember driving. We, we had, 
was carrying some Riverside. I was driving like 40 on the freeway because I was so freaked out I was going to get in an accident, right? But you kind of feel like a little bit like, well, we did this thing, like God did all stuff, and then it's like, well, good luck. Don't like ruin your kid. It's like too late, right? You know, um, that's not how it is with God. He is with you. He's with you. If you're listening online, he is with you. If you are in Christ, if you've given your life to him, he is with you. He's never going to leave you. Feel secure in that. We are loved, we are adopted, and he will sustain our inheritance. And so my question becomes this. If that's true, if what Paul wrote about beautifully in Ephesians, if that's true, if Jesus' words that he says, hey, you cannot be snatched, if that's true, then how might that affect the way we live? What if we lived as confident, secure sons and daughters? What might that change? I don't know if it's going to change anything today or tomorrow, but I wonder if you did that for a whole year, what would start to happen? I want to end by reading this. We, uh, I think it was our last series. We were reciting the Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day 1 together. Um, and I was thinking about it as I was preparing uh, the sermon today. And I want you to hear these words in light of everything that we've just been talking about. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Hear this. Because I... Because you, because we belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And listen to this. And makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed by your great love for us. We can't even comprehend it, to be honest. And we often run away from things that we don't understand. I pray that this morning we would receive these words that you love us, that you've adopted us and that you promise to sustain us until your son comes back again. For those in this room who are struggling to believe that, I pray that you would give them the faith they need to hold on to that. For those in this place that maybe have never said yes to you, that have never said yes to your gospel 
I pray that your Holy Spirit would give them the courage to say yes. In a world that is full of conditions, Father, we pray that we would be nourished by your unconditional love and that you would help us to be able to believe and to receive how you see us, that we would find our identity in our Father, not in what we used to be or even in what we feel to be, but in you and in you alone. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.